MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, September 10th, 2020. Today, Lordy, there are tapes. New audio was released proving Trump knew how deadly COVID was back in February, but downplayed it to the public. A DHS whistleblower steps forward, and the allegations are head-spinning. Mark Meadows comments publicly on an open and ongoing investigation. Deutsche Bank hires a Bill Barr acolyte to rep them in the United States. Trump says he'll nominate Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz to the Supreme Court if he's elected, and Tom Tillis is wrapped up in a campaign finance scandal. I'm your host, A.G. Hey, everybody. I have a pretty great show lined up for you today, including a really amazing in-depth interview with one of our heroes, here on the pod, Peter Strzok. And I have bribed our friend Lincoln's Bible to read your good news stories with me. If you want to submit your good news stories, personal or political, just head to dailybeanspod.com and click contact. You can also submit quarantine confessions there and corrections. And thanks to the generosity of our patrons, we have a surplus of free premium memberships you can claim. A free premium membership that gets you ad-free episodes, you get them early, and you get access to the Mary Trump Book Club series brought to you by Stephen Isaac, one of our patrons, and delivered by myself and comedian and activist and wonderful person, Dana Goldberg. It's great. We just dropped, we just wrapped episode two. It'll be released this weekend, and uh, it's going to be a six-part series, and we've got some surprises, some celebrity drop-ins, I think, so you'll definitely want to sign up for that. And like I said, we have a couple of free... Um, of those donated uh, one-year premium memberships, uh, just head to dailybeanspod.com. So we have so much news, so much bad news for Trump today. I'm, I can hardly wait to get started. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. So in the race for which story is the lead story today, um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, WWMD, what would Maddo do? I have decided to go with the breaking news from the Associated Press. They say, quote, an official at the Department of Homeland Security said in a whistleblower complaint released Wednesday that he was pressured by agency leadership to suppress details in his intelligence reports that President Donald Trump might find objectionable, including intelligence on Russian interference in the election and the threat posed by white supremacists. Uh, AP continues, Brian Murphy says in a whistleblower complaint filed with the agency's inspector general that he was demoted for refusing to alter his intelligence reports in an illegal and improper manner. The former FBI agent and Marine Corps veteran had served as principal deputy undersecretary in the official or in the Office of Intelligence and Analysis. In August, he was demoted to assistant to the deputy undersecretary for DHS management. Quote, Mr. Murphy is, put simply, a dedicated public servant who has a laudable career prior to the recent events that have led to the submission of this package to the Office of the Inspector General. Prior to his current circumstances, he had never had so much as a negative fitness report in his professional career with the U.S. government. Unquote. In his complaint, he alleges that former DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen and current acting Secretary Chad Wolf and Deputy Ken Cuccinelli repeatedly pressed him to change intelligence assessments in ways that would support administration policies or avoid offending the president. 
In one example, he said, Nielsen and her deputies pressed him to exaggerate the number of migrants with links to terrorism who have been detained at the border. Murphy said she falsely used a high figure in testimony to Congress. What? Um, I am expect any minute now a letter to come from House Oversight um, or or House Intel, but probably House Oversight to the Department of Justice for a criminal referral for U.S. Code 18, Section 1001, if Kirsten Nielsen lied to Congress. Going on here, the complaint says that Wolf, Chad Wolf, who has been nominated to be secretary by Trump, he's only been nominated, he's been in an acting position, and he's been there illegally, by the way, along with Ken Cuccinelli, as the Government Accountability Office has told us. But Wolf directed Murphy to cease providing intelligence assessments on the threat of Russian interference to the United States because it, quote, made the president look bad. Murphy said he declined because it would be a violation of his duties not to do it. Murphy said Cuccinelli, that's the deputy, also, like I said, illegally appointed as acting uh, deputy secretary, Cuccinelli directed him to modify a section of a report on white supremacy to make the threat appear less severe, add information on left-wing groups to echo administration talking points around civil unrest following the protests over the murder of George Floyd. Now, let's talk about uh, this uh, thing blown up on the right wing about Carter Page and his FISA warrant and how one of the lawyers, Kleinsmith, had written or added, amended an email saying that Carter Page was not um, an informant for the CIA. Uh, uh, Something that, by the way, would not have changed the outcome of the granting of the FISA warrant renewal or application. And what a big deal they're making about that. Now, here we have somebody asking to, being asked, pressured, by this administration to remove intelligence from a report and add, add bullshit to a report, inflate numbers as far as Kirsten Nielsen is concerned, and Cuccinelli wanting to add an information on left-wing groups to echo administration talking, point, talking points. Add intelligence that doesn't exist. Schiff has asked Murphy to testify before the House Intelligence Committee regarding this, and I say they bring Kirsten Nielsen back in and ask her, if she would like to amend her bullshit statement about the number of migrants that have criminal ties that she pressured this person into inflating, which he refused to do because he's a fucking patriot, but she lied to Congress about. And coming in at a close second place for the lead story today, Lordy, there are tapes. And so what was... uh... President Xi saying yesterday. Well, we were talking mostly about the uh, the virus, and I think he's going to have it in good shape. But you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's uh, it, it goes it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your you know, your, even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is five per, 
you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. Yeah, that was February 7th. And White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany said today, Trump never lied to the American public when he downplayed the coronavirus. But then Trump got up and admitted that he lied. He said... He 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 did those things. He made those statements to keep calm, keep the calm, to prevent panic. So he admitted that he lied to the American people about the severity of coronavirus on February 7th. Joe Biden responded on Twitter saying he would never lie to the American public regardless of the political cost. And now we can look back at that story about Kushner, who shouldn't have a security clearance, deciding not to send aid to Democratic cities hit hard by coronavirus. And then let's think about that in light of today's revelation, along with um, some other things. I mean, that clip, like I said, that was an interview with Bob Woodward. We just heard it took place February 7th. That is just two weeks after Congress was briefed and Loeffler and Burr sold off their stock. Republican senators voted to acquit Trump just two days before that interview in that tape, in the clip we just heard. We know Trump has said he's been downplaying the seriousness of COVID because he didn't want to tank the economy in an election year. He fired the health and human services doctor that gave us the dire warning about COVID that month. Remember, he got that information on Air Force One, fired her. Didn't want people to, didn't want the stock market to drop. He also got the Russian bounty intel in February, tried to tell us he was never briefed and then pivoted to saying that the intel was not credible because different intelligence agencies uh, varied in their confidence levels, even though he doesn't really understand that some agencies do human intelligence and some do cyber intelligence and some do communications intelligence. So, I mean, if 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 you're... assessment on the intelligence of the Russian bounty situation is based on ground, on like boots on the ground, operations, ops, human intelligence, you're going to get high confidence from the human, right? But maybe not from the comms end. Like it's, he did the same thing when the, when the uh, assessment came out from the, from the intelligence community about Russian interference in January of 2017. Well, the NSA and FBI says it's uh, moderate confidence and the CIA says high confidence. So clearly the whole thing is bullshit. That's just it. It it, <laughs> it blows my mind. And, and I mean, how can anyone believe anything that he says now? I mean, not that we couldn't before, but now we have tapes. And we don't have a robust testing and tracing plan because Trump told us he wanted to keep the numbers low. He tells us what he's doing. And now nearly 200,000 Americans are dead. And the senators that voted to acquit him two days before this tape was made, they knew about it too. They were briefed in January, January 24th. They all need to be fired. And Trump should be tried at the fucking Hague for crimes against humanity. It, this, is, this is murder. This is negligent homicide, if, 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 if you ask me. Kushner, too. They should be in prison. The task force knew. Pence knew. Republican senators knew when they voted to acquit. And Adam Schiff said, if you vote to acquit, your name will be tied to his and with a cord of steel for all of history. And Susan Collins furrowed her brow. 
Trump also told us today, if he wins the election in November, that he would nominate Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz to the Supreme Court. Moments after Trump made that announcement, Tom Cotton tweeted, Roe v. Wade must go. Now, I don't have to tell y'all who to vote for. But if you know anybody who's on the fence for some weird reason or thinking about voting third party, let them know. Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton could end up on the Supreme Court. And if, if for nothing else, that's a reason enough to vote for, for Biden and Harris. Next up from Law and Crime, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows appeared to claim that he's seen documents relevant to U.S. Attorney John Durham's probe of the oranges of the Russia investigation. And he says they implicate several Trump and Obama administration officials in potentially illegal conduct. While Meadows did not provide any specifics to substantiate his assertion, legal experts specializing in government affairs immediately wondered and worried if the president's chief of staff had somehow become privy to details of Durham's mostly hidden from the public investigation. He appeared on Fox Business Network Tuesday morning. He told host Maria Bartiromo, I think that's how you say it, I don't know, uh, that while he wasn't able to provide an update on the progress of Durham's investigation, he could confirm that he's seen additional documents that, at worst, several individuals had engaged in still unspecified illegal activities for which they should go to jail. Quote, additional documents that I've been able to review say that a number of the players, the Peter Strucks, the Andy McCabe's, the James Comey's, and even others in the administration previously are in real trouble because of their willingness to participate in an unlawful act. And I use the word unlawful as best it broke all kinds of pro at best it broke all kinds of protocols and at worst people should go to jail. The grand jury always already refused to indict Andy McCabe for the one thing you thought you had him on. <laughs> oh, and by the way, why are you talking about an open and ongoing investigation in public? That's weird. Next up from Bloomberg News, Deutsche Bank AG, who's, I'm no relation, whose global operations uh, is under the microscope of U.S. lawmakers and criminal investigators, has enlisted old friend of U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr to help the bank navigate the political waters in Washington. The decision came from Frankfurt, where the bank's supervisory board, led by Chairman Paul Ochtleitner, uh, has retained Robert Kimmett, according to people familiar with the matter. Kimmett, 72, is a lawyer and former U.S. ambassador to Germany whose friendship with Barr dates back to the 80s. Kimmett's precise role isn't clear, even to many executives within the bank. <laughs> the view from Frankfurt, some of the people said, is that the bank's senior leadership brought him on earlier this year to bolster its presence in the United States Capitol, where, in addition to the criminal inquiries, Democratic lawmakers are scrutinizing the bank's relationship with one of its highest-profile clients, Donald J. Trump. And we all know about the DeJoy campaign finance scandal, right? Um, but, but there's a lot of Republicans tied to it. And today, from the Charlotte Observer in North Carolina, they have to say this, quote, Weekend reports in The Washington Post and New York Times say that for more than a decade, DeJoy pressured employees at his former North Carolina company to donate to Republican candidates, then reimburse them through bonuses. The reports detailed how much uh, or how multiple employees at High Point based New Breed would donate to the same candidate on the same day, sometimes writing checks for identical amounts of money. Quote, we gave him the money and then he reciprocated by giving us big bonuses. That's according to the HR department. A couple of employees there. One of the big beneficiaries of this questionable fundraising? 
Tom Tillis, now running for re-election in the U.S. Senate. According to the Times, 20 mid-level and senior officials at Newbreed donated a total of $37,600 to Tom Tillis on the same day in October 2014. Each official wrote a check for either $2,600, the maximum allowable donation, or $1,000. The Post reports the Tillis campaign committees collected nearly $300,000 from people at that company in 2014 alone, when Tillis ran to unseat Democrat Kay Hagan. Perhaps more concerning is the senator's apparent reluctance to criticize his benefactor for postal delays. Uh, Tillis has not raised questions about DeJoy's troubling House testimony. He said under oath that he hasn't cut overtime, which is a lie. Certainly, undeserved appointments are not a Republican phenomenon, and neither is money-outsized influence on politics. But while DeJoy's potential exploitation of the system is not surprising, it may be illegal. It is in North Carolina. Both Democrats and Republicans, including Tom Tillis, should call for DeJoy to explain the troubling contributions. And if he's unable to do so, he should resign. And we need to, I mean, Tom Tillis, we got we to gotta get on him. He needs to be removed. He needs to step down. Uh, we will be right back with an interview with Peter Strzok. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Thanks for supporting the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Care Of. We all know how important nutrition and wellness are, but the vitamin aisle can be confusing. It's hard to know what you need. There are so many. But never fear. The answer is Care Of. Care Of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long term. Care Of's new line, the Skin and Hair Collection, helps you work on your beauty goals from all angles with a combination of targeted ingredients for hair, skin, and nails. Care Of is super transparent about research and sourcing, uh, and behind every one of their products, they do this with extensive information available on their website, and they have all the fun, informative content on their social pages, too. Care Of's products are formulated with good-for-you, clean ingredients that are backed by science. Care-of's yummy protein powders are made with wholesome ingredients you can recognize like organic cocoa and pink Himalayan sea salt. Just take Care-of's fun and easy five-minute online quiz and it asks you questions about your diet, lifestyle, and health concerns to help address your specific goals. Answer each question like, how much sleep do you get? How often do you work out? Do you follow any diets? Are you concerned about your hair, skin, or nail health? And more. Then your recommendations come in daily individually wrapped packets that are perfect for getting back into a routine. And let me tell you, these little packets are cute and convenient and compostable. Follow Care Of's expert recommendations or adjust your pack anytime. What you receive is totally up to you. Uh, I wanted to focus on having more energy and boosting my immune system. So the vitamins they recommended to me were tailored to my needs. I'm loving Care Of. You guys should check it out. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to takecareof.com slash dailybeans50 and enter co- promo code dailybeans50. That is 50% off at takecareof.com slash dailybeans50 and enter code dailybeans50. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Joining me today is 22-year FBI veteran, lead agent on Operation Ghost Stories, Operation Mid-Year Exam, and he led Operation Crossfire Hurricane as the Deputy Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. He's also the author of the new book, Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. Please welcome Peter Strzok to the show. Peter, thank you for speaking with me today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And I have to say it's an honor to talk to you both professionally and personally. Uh, my family has a history of Russian counterintelligence stuff, and uh, we've been covering you as part of the Mueller investigation and the Mueller She Wrote podcast for nearly three years. And your book is incredible. And I wanted to start with you open it by giving us a look into ghost stories. Can you remind us about that operation? Most I'm, I guarantee you most of our listeners have seen the Americans. <laughs> and so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your insights and your role in ghost stories. Yeah, absolutely. So Ghost Stories, that name actually didn't get appended to the series of cases until uh, much later on. But it what it refers to is a 
series of Russian illegal officers uh, who were in the United States under deep cover, um, collecting information about American society and essentially trying to make themselves look as American and normal as possible, uh, from which point they could engage in a variety of sort of passive intelligence collection, uh, identifying government figures, prospective future government figures, and you know, secretly report back all of this information to Moscow in furtherance of um, the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Services aims. So we were on it, you know, the start date is classified. Uh, the, you know, if you think you enjoy the story now, you know, in 25 or 50 years where the rest of it gets declassified, you're gonna be just in, entranced because it was in the totality a spectacular series of cases. Um, so roughly, you know, give or take, uh, a 10 year series of investigations of a number of individuals who uh, we watched successive agents and analysts handing off to the next generation and just um, gathering uh, information about how the Russians were working here in the United States with these kind of exquisitely hidden officers and everything about them, the way they communicated, the things they were targeting and what their requirements were, the way they were handled and just cataloging uh, in a very deep way some of the activities of Directorate S, which is the, the, the group uh, within the SVR and the KGB before that that they fell under. Wow. Yeah. And it's I, I really recommend um, I know everybody wants to get to the counterintelligence crossfire hurricane stuff, but everyone I really recommend you, you get this book, um, whether on audio or, or uh, through conventional means. I like I like the old hardbacks, but it's just an incredible story. And you're right. I, I, I hope I'm around to hear the declassification of some of, of what happened during that investigation, during that series of cases. Uh, so I'm assuming the series of cases has di had different op names for each one, and then it became Ghost Stories, because I was going to tell you, Ghost Stories is the coolest op name I've heard in a long time. Yeah, kudos to whoever named it. I didn't, it was, I kind of was surprised because I had left uh, Boston in the 2003 time frame and then uh, got back involved when, you know, we we're starting to, we the Bureau, we're starting to look to wrap it up. And, you know, somebody was talking about Ghost Stories. I'm like, well, you know, what the hell is that? I hadn't heard um, that term before. But yeah, typically on counterintelligence cases, they're assigned... Um, a, a code name that isn't, you know, we, if we're, you know, investigating, uh, you know, John Smith, we don't want to call the case John Smith, because if somebody sees that or hears it, we're, they're going to know we're investigating John Smith. So, uh, they get assigned typically, well, always a, uh, a two word code word, um, you know, crossfire hurricane or mid-year exam. And usually there's uh, the way that's done is there's a, a computer that spits out a selection of, uh, random two word combinations, uh, or you can choose your own you don't want it relating to the case or something where somebody could guess uh, what it might be. Um, but there have been some, you know, particularly profound or, or uh, good ones and some also rather, you know, silly or stupid ones. But that is always, you know, the, the, the little bit of uh, kind of creativity you get to exercise as an agent, you know, naming a case is one of those things where there's some latitude. So mm -hmm. having said all that, they're classified. So to sit there and from the start, if you say John Smith is um, you know, sparkling water is an espionage case, you know, that, that combination of information together would be classified. So, you know, even though we now, just the fact that we're talking about mid-year exam, I had not in my book referred to Crossfire Hurricane at all. I couldn't say it because even though everybody in the world knew it, um, when I submitted it to the Bureau for Pre-Publication Review, it still hadn't been released. And then, hmm. you know, a book came out with that as its title. And then the IG put it in their report. And I'm like, okay, well, great. Now I can call, I can say it was Crossfire Hurricane, and I can talk about how I named it. And so, uh, you know, we were then able to incorporate that into the book. But, you know, a little bit of minutia that hopefully is 
Interesting. Yeah, when we talked to Andy McCabe uh, about his book, he 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 was not able to use the term at that time, but we all knew we all knew what it was. Um, speaking of mid year exam. Um, that's the next part of the book you go into, Operation Mid-Year Exam. That's the investigation into the Hillary emails, um, seemingly springing out of the Benghazi investigation. And I think we all know how that turned out. But I do have a couple questions for you. Mm-hmm. The first being um, that you spoke of your frustration about the resources being allocated to that probe. Did you feel other investigations maybe should have had priority at that point? Um, in the best of all worlds, yes. There is no way they could have. I mean, uh, you know, it was one of those situations where I looked at it. I think all of us were frustrated by, I mean, it was, you know, and the shame of this is the team that looked at Midyear. I mean, all the agents and the analysts and the computer forensic experts, I mean, they were really, really good. Like the best handpicked, did an extraordinary job. I would take that, you know, team to investigate the theft of the gates of hell. I, they were just that good and hardworking and aggressive and just competent. And the reality is after all this is done, it became so politicized that, you know, none of them really got their due that they deserved. But I think all of us looked and understood, you know, kind of started getting an understanding early on that there probably was not a prosecutable case. Um, but that didn't mean we could just stop. And because of the nature of the investigation and the profile of the subject, she wasn't the subject, but the profile of who was involved, you know, we had to do that completely because we knew that Congress and others were going to tear it apart. So it was one of those, I, I understand and agree with giving it the resources that we did, but at the same time, all those external factors that made it so that we had to do that was, you know, there was absolutely a frustration there that we couldn't, you know, get at any given time, the scores of very significant cases that are going on that I would have loved to have put a quarter of the team on um, to investigate. Yeah. And um, I have to ask, I've been asking this for years now, um, but I don't, and I don't know if you can answer this, but I was hoping you could speak a little bit to the Rudy Giuliani, Calstrom to Geneva threats about leaks from the New York field, FBI field office. And that was regarding the, the Wiener laptop, right? The additional emails, yes. because it always seemed to me that, you know, this is the question, $64,000 question, is Comey your homie? Um, it always seemed to me that Comey may have been trying to get ahead of any leaks like that, um, which is maybe why he reopened the investigation into the emails. But that also might not be the case. And I didn't know if you could shed shed any light on that, because I know the inspector general did an investigation into the New York FBI field office leaks. But that report was due out over a year ago, and we haven't seen it. Yeah, that I mean, he did investigate, may still be investigating. I'm not sure why it's not out. Uh, you know, I do note, you know, again, this is the, my personal perspective that there, there seem to be these eagerly rolled out and aggressively investigated uh uh, matters which seem to universally please uh, House and Senate Republicans, but those that might please the other side of the aisle seem to either be quiet or moribund. And I think in this particular case, you know, Rudy made very clear statements that he was getting information about things that were going on and, you know, something in the works from people inside the FBI or words to that effect, but not through the grapevine, not through retired agents, but people who were in. He walked that back. Um, but clearly there was concern. And I think Comey has said publicly that, and, and uh, A.G. Lynch, and I think it was in the IG report as well, that they both had discussed concern that had he not made the announcement that there was concern that people in the New York office of the FBI would, if not directly, but through, again, the sort of, you know, two or third um, circle removed, uh, cause that information to come out, which would be, you know, bad from a from a number of perspectives. I don't think that played a determinative role. In other words, 
if you take that concern out of the picture, I still think Director Comey makes the announcement because the kind of underlying principles that he thought, um, my understanding of them, is his reasons for announcing it existed independently in a sufficient enough manner that would push him to make that announcement. But they certainly were there. They certainly were present. They certainly were considered. So, you know, the irony, you know, I've said, hey, look, I never experienced anything where anybody on any perspective or any political um, role in the or, or belief on the political spectrum influencing, having that influence their actions officially, you know, what they did or didn't do. But having said that, the one thing that I can think of where somebody's political belief impacted a decision was that one. And it was certainly concerned about people who were favorable against Clinton um, playing a role in the decision that the, the Bureau made. Yeah. And of course, the Hillary email um, investigation was widely publicly known. But what we're about to talk talk about next, Crossfire Hurricane, was not. And so, you know, when people come and say, well, why didn't you announce that Trump was under investigation? Well, that one hadn't gotten out. And, and you don't do that uh, if you can help it, right? I mean, that's sort of um, the answer to that question, isn't it? Right. That's absolutely true. I mean, there there was clearly a disparate impact of the way the two cases were handled publicly, but it was necessary that we handled them publicly that way. I mean, the Clinton, the email investigation mid-year was very public long before we closed the case. Uh, Director Comey obviously made a speech. There was a tremendous uh, congressional and FOIA uh, requests for information for documents that we began providing because Director Comey wanted to be as transparent as possible. So that was very much in the public domain as a closed criminal matter. Um, contrast that, though, with what we were doing uh, initially looking at, you know, who uh, in the Trump campaign might have received this Russian offer of assistance. You know, that's an ongoing investigation. It's both counterintelligence and criminal in nature. It's classified. And so for all those reasons, uh, appropriately, we didn't discuss it. And so I get, you know, people look and say, wow, that, you know, these were these had wildly disparate um, public handling and very disparate impact, uh, but that was necessary. So, you know, and the other odd thing, obviously, is it, it, it points to the fundamental fact what the FBI did in the summer and fall of 2016, almost without exception, hurt Clinton and it helped Trump. And if that isn't the entirety of the evidence that you need to demonstrate that there was no deep state plot against Trump, I, I don't know what is. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about that before. If you, if you had wanted to wreck Trump's chances, uh, there were plenty of opportunities to do that right. <laughs> that, that, that didn't occur. So, um, But I do want to talk to you more about Crossfire Hurricane, but I have to squeeze in a quick break. Would you mind sticking around? No, nope, that's fine. All right, great. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Recently, I was looking to get my friend the perfect gift, and I discovered PaintYourLife.com. You can have an original painting by a world-class artist done by hand from photos or a photo. It is such a great idea. I know you're probably thinking, that must be really expensive. But I was very pleasantly surprised to find out that PaintYourLife.com does the paintings that are actually affordable, and the quality is amazing. I recommend it, especially for those hard-to-shop people. If you want to give a truly meaningful gift, you have to try it. It's PaintYourLife.com. You get a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at an affordable price. You can choose from a team of world-class artists and work with them until every detail is perfect. Their user-friendly platform lets you order a custom-made hand-painted portrait in less than five minutes. It's so quick and easy. Then you get a hand-painted portrait in about three weeks. Send any picture of yourself or your children or your family or a friend or a place or a cherished pet, and you can combine photos into one painting. It makes a perfect birthday anniversary or wedding gift. 
meaningful, personal, and it can be cherished forever. I love their service. It is so simple and efficient. When the finished product arrived, I was blown away by the quality of this painting. I absolutely love it. The artist really captured the essence of my friend. I gave it to her for her birthday. She's in love with it. At PaintYourLife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, there's a limited time offer. You get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off. And free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word BEANS to 64000. That's texting the word BEANS to 64000. Text BEANS to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are talking with author of Compromised, Peter Strzok. Peter, thank you for staying with us. I just have a few more questions for you. Um, first of all, uh, let's talk about the counterintelligence investigation into Trump's financial ties to Russia. Because on one hand... You have others that have de- uh, and uh, they have described a scenario where Mueller thought the FBI was doing the counterintelligence. FBI thought Mueller was doing the counterintelligence investigation and no one was really doing it. So where is the counterintelligence investigation? That's a great question. I think when you look at the release of the uh, Senate Intel Committee report recently in a thousand pages, uh, which kudos to them for getting a bipartisan report out that uh, all the Republican senators put their name on. Uh, it speaks to a huge counterintelligence picture. Uh, my concern, you know, when we went over and there's been a lot of discussion of this, when I set up the team, my understanding was that I, um, leading that FBI team that was kind of seconded to Mueller, would be doing the counterintelligence work surrounding all of the cases, both individual as well as the broader look about what Russia had done and, uh, you know, potentially was still doing vis-a-vis the Trump, the the individuals that we had cases on. Um, And so we hadn't, and and Mueller, to my mind, my recollection, because we talked about, I talked about this with him and and the others uh, on his senior leadership team, it was very clear that his mandate, the special counsel regulations, his appointment orders, kind of the way we structured the, all the attorneys, that all that was focused very much on violations of law and proving those up or not. And so that the expectation was that, you know, because CI is squarely part of the FBI's mission, that we would do that. That's a really hard task. I mean, that's a massive task. If you want to do that well, that's going to take an extraordinary amount of resources. Just looking at his financial enterprise is a massive, massive undertaking at any given point in time. But if you want to go back to understand the beginnings of his interactions with kind of shady and nefarious Russian money or organized crime money or an intelligence related money, you've got to go back a long way to understand that. So to do that was going to be really, really hard. And then of course I get removed having not solved or come up with a way to do this. And that set in motion. I mean, there was just the explosion from Trump and the increasing drumbeat and the attacks on both Director Mueller as well as the FBI. And then Andy gets fired and the new director comes in who doesn't know the background about this. And my fear, and I don't know if this is true. I mean, there may be a huge, very well-staffed, very robust effort that is either ongoing or concluded at the FBI working with the USIC. But my fear is that in the kind of shuffle of all that, Director Mueller and the special counsel staff are still, you know, on the attorney side, the non-FBI side, are moving ahead thinking the FBI's got this. You know, we've got FBI people who are pulling out leads and sending it back to the FBI. And yet nobody at the FBI maybe is taking a holistic look beyond what Rush is doing. In other words, looking beyond the, the ordinary scope of our Russian counterintelligence work to specifically look at all the individuals on and around Trump. And, and, and I don't, again, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but my sense is 
I, I, I don't think I am. Yeah, because, I mean, we know Rosenstein set the scope and the special counsel reg set the scope of what Mueller was looking into and in a series of memos as well. And But he's also the one who uh, invited journalists to review your text messages with Lisa Page. Isn't that, isn't that kind of, I mean, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that was trying to get you removed from that position. Yeah, I can't, I, look, I don't, I'm seeing the Bureau right now um, that they illegally, you know, for a number of things, my firing, but also that they illegally released those texts um, and some other issues. But, you know, they invited the press in in the middle of the night, said they could look at them and not attribute the having seen them to DOJ all right in the, in advance of uh, Rosenstein's appearance before the Hill. So, you know, there are a number of ways they could have refused to do that. Um, certainly, it's kind of unprecedented in the middle of an IG investigation about those that ultimately concluded there was no inappropriate, um, you know, action taste on, taken on any improper motive. There are many reasons they could have said, no, we're not going to release it. So I can't, I don't know the motives. Uh, it's They were clearly, in my mind, improper and illegal. Uh, whether that was to, you know, save somebody's individual skin versus organizational skin versus the, um, the the direction of the White House, you know, I certainly think there was absolutely improper political influence that was brought to bear on that decision. I I also want to talk to you about Andrew Weissman, who has come out saying that the Times reporting was incorrect and the FBI knew because there were dozens of agents embedded in Mueller's office. You know because you led them, uh, and the Mueller report said counterintelligence summaries were sent back to the Bureau on a weekly basis. Did you receive those summaries from those embedded, co-located FBI agents? Um, so that was something, again, I can't speak to with direct knowledge because I had that was not occurring when I was there. So mm. I have seen the reporting and certainly I've seen Mueller's testimony that people were embedded and things were sent back. But that's not, I mean, that's a good answer, but it's not an ideal answer. And having said that, I, I read the, you know, the Times reporting, and I, I saw what Andrew had to say. I don't think they're necessarily in conflict with each other. But, you know, having said that, look, I never felt any restriction um, from anybody on the scope of what I wanted to do from a counterintelligence perspective. Having said that, it was really nascent. Um, and I can envision a point, you know, particularly if, you know, a month later, had I stayed in late summer, early fall, had I gone and I said, look, we need to get all these financial records for this scope of time for, you know, in a comprehensive way, because both that would require a huge ton of resources to analyze and investigate. And also that would be so provocative and so noisy. I mean, necessary investigatively. Um, but I can see um, an issue coming up there where it would have to get resolved at the highest levels of DOJ and the FBI. But I didn't feel at the time I was working in the special counsel's office, any restriction on what I could do from a CI front. Andrew is also right. I mean, there was there was nothing that was withheld from the FBI, if in my experience. And I don't know, again, can't speak to what happened if I left. But an FBI agent or analyst wanted to see something that came back in a subpoena return or a interview or a proffer session. They had access to that. So Andrew's right. But I think there's a, there's a gap in the middle there. There's, you know, the Delta is, you know, he can be right. And it can be right that, you know, Rosenstein was going to stop us from doing any full-blown investigation. And it never became an issue just because it never matured to that stage. And that, you know, people assume just because people were sending information to feedback to the FBI, well, that's great. In an ideal circumstance, you then have the FBI coming back 
And, you know, is a more, much more of a sort of Intel cycle sort of way to think about this, that then all these kind of requirements and, you know, trying to understand and pointing the investigative team to places to seek information, not for a criminal prosecution, but to seek information from an intelligence perspective, that looping back, I, that's what I worry we missed or, or was missed. And, you know, that's one thing. And then the other thing is somebody needs to sit there. You can't think of CI as what is Trump's and Manafort's and Flynn's and Cohen's and Stone's and, you know, Assange's, you know, particular CI picture. If you're doing CI well, you've got to assemble that into a comprehensive picture. You have to sit there and step back out of the individual, put yourself as Russia and say, what is Russia doing? What is the complete sort of horizon of everything they're doing? And how do all these little things we're seeing relate to each other? Because that's what's going to inform you how Russia was acting. Were they doing this in a coordinated way? Was there any centrally driven operation? If so, how, if not, why not? That, you can't do that if you aren't sitting side by side with the people on Mueller's team. So, you know, who knows? But we'll, it's, it's a worthy question and, and one I hope that does get answered one day. Mm, me too. But, um, but let's step back a little bit and talk about what Russia was doing. Uh, you know, with the hacks to the, the, the DNC, the DCCC. But you talk in your book, you talk about Russia was pulling its punches. Uh, they implying Russia has way more than they've let on. Uh, we know from public reporting that they also hacked the RNC, the fruit of which we have not seen. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell me uh, a little bit about a little bit about that. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I was happy that in the pre-publication process, I was able to say that, you know, just the fact that there were things that we thought were coming that didn't. Uh, I think some of that is a function of they were surprised as uh, most every pollster that Trump won. And so if part of the goal is you're trying to undermine the, f the, the validity of Hillary Clinton's election, if she's not elected, you probably don't want to undermine that result anymore if you're, if you're a guy who won. Um, so I think that explains some. I think there's probably a lot of reasons that we, we can't yet explain. But there were things, you know, in, in the specifics I can't, uh, I'm not at liberty to talk about. But I think what I, what I can say is, that, you know, they've become, Russia's become much more effective at um, misattributing the source of their actions. In other words, to make mm -hmm. it harder to demonstrate that things are being directed or coming from Russia, uh, whether as opposed to any other place. I think I know and I expect that the full range of things that we saw in 16 are going on now, um, social media manipulation, um, seeking to kind of exacerbate existing societal tension points probing every last voting registration database and state voting infra cyber infrastructure and hardware that is being used. And then certainly all the traditional stuff of trying to insert agents and recruit people in and around each of the campaigns and, you know, and administration in Trump's case. Um, so they're doing that. They're doing it with four years to have honed their techniques. Um, certainly we saw some of that in 2018. I think there was some U.S. government response to that. But I expect it is not only going on now, uh, but is going to continue and increase not only through the election. But what worries me the most is I think there's a very likely chance that we're going to have a uh, election decision that isn't clear until well after election day. And that intervening period between the election day and the final electoral college result is going to be an absolutely fertile ground for Russian mischief and, and disinformation. Hmm. That's a... That's a good warning for, for us all to be prepared for. And 
I mean, speaking of the social media stuff, I mean, you were talking, you, you were saying in your book, it was like, it was huge. Like it was almost it, like people were taken aback by the, the scope of it. And now, you know, now we've got, it's not just bots and trolls, right? Uh, botnets and trolls or the IRA. We've got actual American people with large, massive followings who are being sort of turned uh, and putting out uh, these Russian talking points. And it's, it's, it's diabolical the the scope to which they are infiltrating our our social media sphere. Yeah, and it's hard, right? Because we're in an age where you can self-select your news. You don't have to. Your options aren't Walter Cronkite or Peter Jennings. You, you can pick whatever flavor reinforces your sensibilities and what you want to believe. And so the problem is when you know Russia takes advantage of that. If you try and come in and say, "Hey, you know, Russia is playing you." Well, your natural response is like, well, you know, this is my opinion. This is my belief. You're telling me that my belief isn't valid, that it's Russian propaganda. And so people get their, you know, they get their back up and they get worried because you're trying, you know, your team won and you're trying to tell me, well, they won because, you know, somebody was paying off the refs. And I'm saying, well, I don't care if they were paying off the refs. My team was better and they would have won anyway. So people automatically start from an adversarial perspective if you're trying to warn them that any outside party is trying to advocate for whatever it is that they believe in. And so some of the issue is trying to get people to say, this isn't, this is value neutral. This warning isn't saying whether your belief is good or bad or right or wrong. And I could really give a damn. What I'm trying to do is make sure that you know that within this environment, this chunk of what you're hearing isn't coming from an American or, you know, some, some reporter in Des Moines. It's coming from you know, just outside of, of Moscow. And that's a really, psychologically, that's a really hard gap to bridge in this age where everybody is kind of naturally, subconsciously or consciously gravitates to that stuff they want to hear. And I don't know how, I don't know how we effectively combat that. But it's, you know, it was a problem in 16. It's just gotten worse. Yeah, I, do, I don't either. And I've, I've been, uh, I've seen a lot of, of these types of uh, messages uh, on social media quite a bit. And whenever you bring it up, there is a common list of very commonly used uh, ideas and phrases. And like, we're called shit libs or neo libs or blue anon, or we have worms in the brain. I've seen that dozens and dozens of times. So that's a phrase. Uh, somebody who has flipped now and is is promoting, you know, voter suppression or, you know, a Green Party for Bernie or whatever, they, they always say, well, he changed his mind over time. He had some personal growth. Um, I hear, you know, Medicare for all isn't a Russian talking point or that there's a Russian hoax or blue MAGA or McCarthyism. I mean, it's, it's, I, I expect these phrases to turn up in a 2020, you know, election interference counterintelligence report at some point that they're just so commonly used. And, and it's I, I don't know how to combat it either. It's impossible to talk about it without those kind of messages coming back at you. Right. That's true. And we're such an open book. We're such an easy target. I mean, people are so it, if if you're anybody abroad, I mean, you can do it now. I mean, as an American, you can sit there and catalog what all the hot button issues are and where the schisms are. And you can certainly it doesn't take a lot of effort to, uh, you know, go in and, and figure out where if you had, you know, a gallon of gasoline to find the, you know, the three or four areas where you could make the most mischief with that if you were, you know, choosing to to pour it across the kind of national dialogue. And it's just, I, we, we have lost this ability to 
consider and reason with the opposition or things in conflict with our view. And when you start getting polarized perspectives that way, that's just so much more fertile an environment for disinformation because it, it is absolutely just feeding what you want to hear and you're unwilling to consider anything else. Um, before I let you go, I just got one more quick question mm-hmm. for you. These reports coming out now, these briefings from Evanina, for example, they seem to equate the risk proposed uh, or the risk involved with China and Iran um, and that of Russia, the risk um, that we're that we're facing with election interference. And and we just found out breaking today, we have a DHS whistleblower saying that they were told to stop briefing on Russian interference and report only on China. And I want I was wondering if you think that these Evanina briefings, these press releases are are effective? Are they reaching the audience they need to? And are they correct? Because Barr went on national television with Wolf Blitzer and said China was our number one election interference threat. And what do you what do you think about that? Well, look, I know Bill. I've worked with Bill for a long time. He knows he, he's a good agent. I, I think he may have transitioned out of the bureau over into uh, NCSC, but I don't know his official role. But he gets CI, and he's in a horrible spot because he has to both be honest broker to Congress and the American public at the same time. He's got to, like every other senior leader in the United States government, walk on eggshells around a president who will fly into a rage at anything suggesting that a foreign power, particularly Russia, favors him over uh, somebody else. And so how you do that job in that environment, I, I don't envy that that job at all. But look, having said that, when you look at what Russia is doing, it is fundamentally different in scope and in uh, effectiveness and in intrusiveness into American domestic politics than anything anybody else is doing. The Chinese, the Iranians, the Cubans, you name it. Russia is actively involving themselves in matters that not only relate to Russian interests, but are seeking to divide America purely on internal American issues and events. Contrast that with the Chinese. Of course, the Chinese are playing games in the information space. They care about how COVID is being presented to the international environment. They care about how what they're doing or not doing with the Uyghurs is getting reported. They have any number of issues that are important to China about China. And how that is portrayed in American media is very much something they're going to look at, how any potential future president would look at that. They are absolutely interested in that. Iran Again, they are certainly a capable adversary, but it is nothing compared to what Russia and China bring to the table. And so when you look at that, it is there is a fundamentally different set of concerns and threat that comes out of Russian actions in the cyber and sort of disinformation uh, media manipulation arena in the elections compared to anybody else in the world. And so, you know, the easy argument is to make a false equivalency. Well, you know. Russia likes maybe Trump, fine, but you know China likes Biden and Iran likes Jill Stein. I mean, you can't. It's a, it's a you you can't. That's that's a horrible false equivalence. There is no question that the threat from Russia is far more sophisticated and more invasive in our internal political processes, and that those actions by Russia are unequivocally designed to help Trump. Yeah, and we'll have to follow what this whistleblower is saying and. See where that ends up. But I want to thank you so much for speaking with us today. You are truly an American hero. Do you 
Do you have a legal defense fund, by the way, or anywhere people can help you out? Uh, no. So, I mean, people are extraordinary. Uh, when I was fired, we had a, a GoFundMe site and raised a, a bunch of money that went to my attorneys to, you know, for any number of things, for the lawsuit that I have right now, for all the, you know, the IG investigations and the Senate investigations. So people were extraordinarily generous. And, you know, I can't thank it. It's one of those heartwarming things when you mm. see the, you know, this groundswell of, of grassroots donations really um, was was remarkable. And I'll, I'll forever be thankful for that. Awesome. Well, we're glad you're doing well. And more importantly, did I hear a cat in the background? You do. It's the uh, it's the standard COVID days. If not the cat, you would have heard either the dog or the second cat. But it's uh, you know it's it's part of what keeps uh, you know the the, the neediness of animals uh, always present in the background. You have a dog and two cats. I have a dog and two cats. You worked in Russian counterintelligence. My dad worked in Russia. We have to we have to talk more. We have to be friends. Tremendous synergy here, right? Isn't that what uh, <laughs> is? I think that was like one of those people who were proposing the uh, Moscow deal, wasn't it? We can a- achieve synergies. There was something about that. So. <laughs> yes. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. <laughs> It's great to talk to you. It was great to talk to you, too. I really appreciate you uh, giving us time. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back after this message with the Good News Block. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's AG, and this portion of The Daily Beans is brought to you by Plush Care. With the pandemic, uh, everyday tasks are much more challenging, but seeing a doctor shouldn't be. That's why I use Plush Care. Plush Care provides primary and urgent health care through virtual appointments. Scheduling an appointment, even for the same day, is really easy. I just pick a slot, a couple of clicks, and book it online. Super, super easy. I don't waste any time on hold on a phone or sitting in a crowded waiting room where I could be vulnerable or make other people vulnerable. With my Plush Care membership, I can see my doctor from the comfort of my own home, still in my onesies. I'm wearing them right now. With Plush Care, I can get diagnosed, treated, and even have a prescription sent to my local pharmacy, all within minutes. And if I have any questions before or after my visit, I can send unlimited messages to my care team anytime. Plus, Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers and is available in all 50 states. And with how difficult things are, if you're feeling anxious or depressed or stressed about what's going on in the world, Plush Care doctors are there to help by discussing treatment options and providing prescriptions as needed. I can tell you personally, my Plush Care experience has been a breeze. Signing up was super easy. It only takes a minute. And it's just as easy to schedule an appointment. The entire process has been so convenient. And I was immediately comfortable with my doctor. And because all Plush Care doctors graduated from one of the top 50 medical schools in the country, and they're all highly rated by their patients. So I get peace of mind that I'm getting the highest quality health care. Plush Care makes it easy for me to get the excellent care I need when I need it. They can do the same for you. So start your membership today. Go to plushcare.com slash dailybeans to start your free 30-day trial. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E dot com slash dailybeans for a free 30-day trial. plushcare.com slash dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It is time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news is on the way. And joining me today for the good news block is my friend, your friend, Twitter phenomenon, <laughs> Lincoln's Bible. LB, how are you? I'm really well. It's been a day, AG. Good. It's another day of, of insanity. <laughs> Today, though, holy smokes, right? We got, I talked to Peter Strzok. We got that DHS whistleblower shit. There's a lot of good news that happened. I mean, it's awful, terrible that, you know, the shit that we're learning about, but it's really bad for Trump today. Yes. And it's honestly, as wretched as it is, it's good to finally hear it. Uh, Yeah. You know, we, we do need to hear that. We do need to know what is going on. Um, And so that as horrible as it is. Information is power. Well, 
It is. And I'm so glad you're here today because we have some information submitted to us by our listeners, our patrons and our listeners, that what they do is they go to our website, dailybeanspod.com, they click on contact, and they can send us either quarantine confessions or good news stories. And the good news stories are either personal or political. And we have all good news stories today. We didn't get any confessions yesterday. And this sort of lets us end on an up note. Uh, And so I wanted to invite you on to help me read some of these listeners submitted good news stories. So sound good? Yes, I'm so excited. I, 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 I didn't know really... I haven't done this before, so I'm excited. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining me. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and kick it off with our first good news story. It comes from Donna, and Donna's pronouns are she and her. And Donna says, good news in a relatively bad scenario. I have been approved for a procedure to reduce belly fluid caused by cirrhosis of the liver. It's called a TIPS procedure, and though it's not a cure, I hope to gain some quality of life back. Doc says I'm a good candidate, but some of the side effects could make me loopy and disoriented, like getting stoned on the cheap, LOL. The good news, I thought that was the good news. The good news uh, in my favor is that even if it fails, I'm one step closer to a transplant. For the first time in a while, I feel hopeful And that in itself is worthy of good news. For the curious, I'm an eight-year hep C survivor and probably got infected back in 75 when I was hit by a car. They didn't test Uh. back then. I am a newly sponsored member, so thank you all very much. That is so great, Donna. And I know like, there's a lot of medical procedures... That, you know, to be on a transplant list or to get certain certain procedures done where you have to go through like other procedures first. So yeah. I really hope this improves your quality of life. And like you said, if it doesn't, bam, you're a step closer on that donor list. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm just we're going to be thinking about you. And thank yep. you for sharing that. You know, it's hard to share personal medical information and it actually makes such a difference for everyone. It does. Yeah, especially if somebody else is going through it. I know that right. uh, like that always comforts me, um, you know, to, to know I'm not alone. And so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, all right, LB, what's up next? Well, I have one from Gilly or Jilly, she, uh, who says, I have MS and take a tablet which lowers my immune system and has caused me to have massively increased anxiety. Uh, it's just not a good time, AG, for anyone to be having that. Um She continues, I had my neurology review recently and was told my blood levels are good. I have no increased risk. And in actual fact, the tablets I take are being used in a trial in China for a COVID treatment. Whoa. She might be taking care of herself on many levels here. Double bonus in this shit show of a year. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I love listening to the pod, and I'm a long-term fan from the beginning. Oh, Oh, it's good news. The kitchen days. I like it. Thanks, Gilly. I think I followed you today. I think I followed you today. Because, you know, because LBI was, you know, I got that massive bot attack yesterday. I'm like, look at all these people with Russian talking points, and they all have low... They all have low followers, like low follower accounts. Right. And and Gilly was like, hey, I only have 28 followers. And I was like, nope, 29. Bam. And I followed <laughs> her back. And I'm like, I just want to explain. It's not just low followers that make you seem like you're a, a questionable uh, account on Twitter. The, yeah. the Twitter handle, the amount of people you're following, uh, the avatar, uh, whether you have uh, r- Russian-sponsored hashtags in your bio. That's a big clue. Yeah. A coordinated semantics are, are <laughs> a little bit of a giveaway. Just Your a little bit. Tiny, tiny bit. Well, thank you again <laughs> for that, um, Gilly. That's wonderful. I'm so glad. Yeah. Good news. Um, next up from a German army. 
uh, uh, pronouns she and her. That is my friend. My good news is that I finally completed my uh, New Year's resolution when I sent my vote from abroad ballot yesterday. I live in Germany. Oh, a German Ami is Amilander. It's an American. I thought it was like, friend. No, she's Amilander. She's expat. On January 1st, 2020, I requested my ballot. I've been impatiently waiting to do my part to get that lunatic out of office. And... (laughs) My two young adult children also voted in their very first presidential election this year. So that is three votes from Minnesota to keep Minnesota blue. I hope no other election will be as important as this one for the rest of our lives. And that after four years of Biden and eight years of Harris, the U.S. will be in a good enough spot that nothing is remotely as dangerous to our country as a second version of Trump will ever threaten our democracy again. Thanks for all you do. Tschüss. Tschüss. Bis spät. Ich liebe dich. And Dankeschön for voting as a Democrat abroad. I appreciate that. And the two kids, too. That's so great. And the two kids, too. And, you know, and just I'm a little jealous because I still have it's not my time to vote yet. So I'm excited for everybody who's who's beating us in there and getting in there early. Good, (laughs) good, good. It must feel great. I know, right? Like I, every time I vote, I cry. I don't know. Uh, I do. I have a I have a wall of stickers. I just put the mm-hmm. I am voted stickers on the wall. So it's exciting. Nice. Okay. I have one from Andy G. Great. No, uh, no pronoun. In mid-July, my wife of nearly 22 years passed away. As you can probably imagine, this was a stunning loss for me and our three children, ages 19 with a little, okay, not a child, 12 and nine. I think 19 still a child. I'm sorry. That's your kid. Yeah. I have had an extremely difficult time coping, but have gotten amazing support from her family. My wife was also incredibly active in the fiber arts community. And since her passing, said fiber arts community started a legacy fund for her that has raised nearly $30,000 for me and the kids. Oh, that's amazing. And this is going to make me cry. What did you pull me into here, AG? Now I'm going to cry today. And we've gotten numerous gifts of food from since, uh, I think he just means to say, since the folks in our area, from the folks in our area, which has restored my faith in humanity during this shift show of a year. I think he means shit show, Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe he didn't want to swear. So, um, Andy, I'm so sorry to hear that and that you are putting something in for good news to to share the goodness that's coming out of this is uh, a testament to who you are as well. So uh, that's very moving. And your resilience. yeah. And the resilience. And there's a little note on here uh, of what you sent me, AG, about the fiber arts community, what that refers to of this sort of arts made out of natural and synthetic fiber, um, fabric and yarn. It is cool. Uh, My daughter does that. Um, And it's about the materials and about the worksmanship. um, Textures and... yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And they are, it is a good community. I mean, they're just, you know, loving people. So, well, thanks Andy for sharing that. That's, it's rough. that's profound. It's profound. Yeah. Um, next up, I have a good news story from Judy. Uh, pronouns are she and her. Judy says, <clears throat> I just drove to town and back. Uh, She went to town, everybody. Uh, (laughs) I saw a total of eight political signs. Seven were supporting Democratic candidates. One was supporting voting. So that was Democratic, too. I take that as a good (laughs) omen. I wanted to say sign, but I was over my quota. (laughs) (laughs) 
I did see a lot of no trespassing, no dumping, and bunches of for sale signs more than any others, whatever Uh. that means. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast for so long. I was a $1 patron. I look forward to listening every day. I still listen to old downloads on weekends. Oh, thank you so much, Judy. Uh, We offered, LB, we had a $1 patron level, and then I I got a bunch of shit from our listeners, like... They were mad because they said I was that the show was more valuable than that, and we were undervaluing it. And so I watched Amanda fucking Palmer and her TED Talk, and I was like, "You're right." And we upped it to three bucks. <laughs> <TED> talks. <laughs> Those TED Talks can can get to you. Yeah. Oh, that yes, is funny. Um, I like a one dollar patron. I think I think every once in a while, um, you know, you got to lower the bar so people can get in because it's we shouldn't always have those financial barriers in place. I don't like Well, you know what we did? Um, We have so many generous patrons. We've had hundreds of patrons buy outright, donate one year premium memberships for 36 bucks. So for people who can't swing it right now, or or some of our frontline workers or healthcare workers or veterans, like you know people in need and 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 people who deserve them, and we got hundreds and hundreds um, from our super generous patrons, uh, and we we have a little bit of a surplus now. So you could sign up, go to dailybeanspod.com and sign up and get a free sponsorship for a year. I love it. I love that. That's a brilliant idea, yeah. by the way. Thanks. I love it. Okay, I have from anonymous uh, pronounced she and her. Over the Labor Day holiday weekend, I started writing postcards for postcards to voters. By the way, AG, my dad does this. Never talked Aww. about my dad too much, but he's it makes it fills him up. He loves writing his postcards. Um, it's a postcard writing campaign that encourages Democratic voters in swing states and states with key races to vote by mail and encourage other voters in key races to vote for progressive candidates. Uh, it's It really is something great for everybody to do if you feel like you can't do anything. Okay, that's that's an albedo. Uh, back to anonymous. I was able to handwrite and mail over a hundred postcards by the end of the weekend. Hat tip to my husband Pete for helping by writing a few of them, and to my twelve-year-old daughter for helping to put stamps on each postcard. Most of the cards I have sent thus far were to Democratic voters in counties throughout Florida, yay, a key state in the 2020 presidential election, and to encourage Democrats in Kentucky to vote for Amy McGrath for the U.S. Senate. Ooh. Senate, who's running to unseat Turtle Dick, <laughs> Moscovich McConnell. <laughs> oh, we got to get rid of him, AG. We got to get rid of him. Yep. Uh, she goes on to say, turning the Senate blue is just as important as kicking Trump out of the White House. We agree with you, Anonymous. Yes. 100%. 100%. Join me in doing a little activism from home, writing postcards by visiting www.postcards2voters.com. Postcards to voters, a plural on both of those words, everybody. Thank you, AG, Jordan, and Mandy for keeping me sane and laughing the last two or so years. The happy hour on Fridays have been a lifeline for me during the pandemic. I have found my people. They are the Leguminati. <laughs> I love that we have our own language. <laughs> Turtle Dick, Mitch, and Leguminati. It's fucking uh, essential. I haven't heard. Is uh, that your, I missed the Turtle Dick thing. So I, I, it's a bad image. I got to admit, I, I don't quite want that image in my head. But no, uh, you know, whatever. Matthew fucking Whitaker is big dick toilet wine or hot tub yeah. crime machine. I know you guys come up with good <laughs> nicknames oh, yeah. on your podcast too. Mine are, mine are very salty. Uh, yeah, we do. You know, it's a, it's awesome. how you make it through. I don't know how else to make it through, but mm-hmm. calling these people out for fucking what they fucking are. It's just horrible. Yeah, agreed. 
Okay. 100%. I, I concur. Next up from Sharon G in San Francisco. Sharon says, my mother, my business partner, and his whole family, who are all lifelong Republicans, are all voting for Biden. My business partner said, while I like some of his policies, uh, no economy or tax benefit is worth four more years of Trump. This is the most I've been able to talk to him about politics in four years since he voted for Trump. I have learned to patiently listen and then offer more food for thought or an article to read. Now that he is off the Trump train, my next goal is to work on getting him to vote for Jamie Harrison because he lives in South Carolina. (laughs) He has a strong network of friends and colleagues there. I figure if I can get him to come around, he'll spread the word to all of his friends. LB, I love that. Um, uh, No economy or tax benefit is worth four more years of Trump. Now, the economy is in shambles right now, uh, and we're all paying, I'm paying more taxes, but um, that's a great line, you know, for, for Republicans on the fence or moderate Republicans on the fence. Hey, it was, it, what, nothing is worth this, right? No, I mean, I, I, if people can't reach a place right now where they're like, okay, we've had enough of this, um, then they're not reachable anyway. So it is nice to hear that there are, you know, uh, our folks that are Republicans are finally, I think they probably made a decision maybe a while back of sort of saying, I'm going to vote. If it's Biden, I'll vote for Biden. But now they're, at least they're willing to talk about it, share it, there's no shame in it, um, you know, of just admitting that you made a mistake. It's really, really, really hard to be conned. And it's going to be really hard for, for the people who voted for Trump, who, who know they were conned, to at that level of con that this is, and especially if they wore his merch or, you know, talked about it publicly. It, it's a very, as much as everyone says, people don't have any shame it actually is a very shameful place spiritually for people to be in to go, Oh my God, I fell for that. Yeah. And, and to it and to get past it. But once they can say, okay, enough, nothing's worth it. I'm going to vote for Biden. Yep. I promise you these people become dragons, right? They become, Oh yeah, of fierce. course. It's they like ex smokers are the biggest, you know, uh, anti-smokers on the planet. Uh, any any customer who has yeah. you've learned this in customer service. Any customer who's been turned around and has had their mind changed is a street team member for sure. So, oh yeah, thanks again for that, Sharon in San Francisco. I appreciate it. Hey. Who do we have next here? LB Anka. Anka pronoun she her. Good news. My seventy year old uncle is a volunteer caretaker of the U.S. Forest mm. Service's animal stock. Okay, so that's horses, mules used in maintaining the area. In the Los Padres uh, National Forest in California. Oh, guys, it's so on fire. Okay, I have a feeling I know what this is going to say. He lives in a cabin provided for him and has no vehicle. He is totally dependent on the outside world to bring him whatever else he needs. It's a very bare-bones situation, but he has found a purpose in this role that he desperately needed. The Dolan fire was headed this way, and I was desperately worried for him as I tracked the fire online. He had been planning to try to shelter the animals in a pipe corral and try to let the fire burn by him, but was afraid the animals would spook. I watched as the online, oh God, I'm getting nervous. <laughs> I watched as the online tracker showed the fire go through the area where he lived, waiting to hear from him. The next morning, we finally heard that someone had gone in to go get the animals, and later he got the go order, and someone took him out. Later, he found out that the building he lived in was encircled by fire, but made it through. However, mm. the building with all his equipment and tools did not. He and the animals are safe though, and in the shit show, that is these days as I sit here with the sky, the most apocalyptic color of orange that I have ever seen. 
I'm going to see this as the best news I have mm. heard in a long time. As we keep telling him, he moans about the loss. Quote, things are replaceable. People are not. Yeah. Oh, it's it's hard. It's hard to be out here. I'm so I'm so glad. I want to say, Anne, Anka, I am so thrilled that your that your loved one made it through and the animals are okay. And um, you're right. It's really, really, really hard out in California right now. Um, and I I feel like because all the news uh, is so focused on the East Coast in terms of where people live, that bring us the news regularly, both print and and cable, that. If they were out here, I feel like this would be 24-7. I feel like this is all anybody would be talking about. Um, and so we get missed, you know. But that orange sky, that darkness, you know, um, at 8 o'clock in the morning, a friend of mine was driving mm -hmm. and taking pictures, and it was dark as night. And um, mm. it, it's very apocalyptic here, and um, and climate change is real, and everybody needs to uh, start thinking about how we're going to how we're going to solve these problems. I mean, my God, Agreed. my Agreed. God. <sighs> I'm, I'm, okay. I'm so glad he's safe. I'm so glad he's safe. Um, yeah. Good news. But, uh, and also Anka, my DMs are open. If you need anything, you need me to share, go find me. You need me to do anything to replace the tools, whatever you let me know next up. Good. And this is our final bit of good news. And this is from Helen. And Helen says, a special thank you to your tech person, Kanai, who was so patient and kind about walking me through the mysteries of getting connected to the premium feed. Such understanding and so reassuring that I am not as big of a tech idiot as I feared. I really am, but how generous to say otherwise. You have some remarkable people working with you. So a big hug and a kiss to my new best friend, Kanai. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Helen, thank you so much. And Kanai, thank you so much. We do have a really, really incredible staff here. And it's because of y'all. It's because of patrons like you um, that that we can, you know, we pay them way above a living wage and we give everybody health care and all sorts of stuff. So thank you so much, too. This is, I think, a, this is a symbiotic relationship. You know, yeah. you all say, you all say I can't make it without you. You bring me sanity. I say the same thing to you. And yeah, we, we really support each other. And I love this community. LB, thanks for joining me today so much. Everybody oh, check out the narrative podcast with Zev Shalev and, and LB and um, Oliar, our friend Greg Oliar and Eric Garland is on that show as well. So check that out. And LB, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here? I don't. I want to, I want to go to bed now. It's been a long day of, of, <laughs> of horribleness. Although I have to go, I have to go help my daughter with, I have to do high school algebra because this is my life now. Um, and so good news. Uh, we'll hopefully get A's. I'm in yep. high school again. It's, it's mm. all of our nightmares. All of our nightmare recurring dreams are actually coming true. Um, we're, we're all back in high school, um, being tested. So it's mm. quite something. <laughs> hmm. Anyway. Well, well, you know, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> Thanks, AG. <laughs> I live for your laugh. <laughs> thanks, LB. Everybody, thanks so much. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>